The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 8. This message was given during the evening service on August 14, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. We continue our extensive series on suffering from the third series of 1 Peter chapter 1, a series that I've entitled A Joyful Salvation. The sermon title again tonight is the same as it's been for the last seven weeks, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering. And that we will eventually make our way to 1 Peter 1.6 because we come to the second of four marks of suffering for believers in that text. But that's not for a while. In our note sheet tonight, the introduction says, Time for a Pagan Lecture. I've taught you this before, but it's good by way of review. And there is a reason for why I'm doing this. Number one. What is a pagan? Paganism and decadence are intertwined. Now, we're going to focus on paganism, but what is decadence? Decadence comes from the Latin, decadentia, sounds like it. A decadent person or a decadent nation is one that morally falls away. That's what decadence means, to morally fall away. Paganism and, and decadence are intertwined, but they're not the same. They're not synonymous terms. Why is that? Well, let's follow the logic. This is a true statement, what I'm about to read. A pagan person is a decadent person. You can write that down on line one, under number one. A pagan person is a decadent person. Decadent is spelled D-E-C-A-D-E-N-T. That's true. All pagans are decadent. However, if we invert that statement to read this way, a decadent person is a pagan person, that's not necessarily true. On line two, write that down. A decadent person is a pagan person, not necessarily true. A pagan person is a decadent person. A decadent person is not necessarily a pagan person. So we have to define paganism. All right, so all pagans are decadent, but all decadent people are not necessarily pagan. Decadence simply defines for us the immoral path that some individuals or societies travel on, the road they travel on, or the way that they live. They're decadent. Decadence describes the moral behavior of a pagan. But there is more to our understanding of what a pagan is than simply saying a pagan is a decadent fellow. That's not correct. It's not accurate. A Christian can behave in a decadent way. But technically speaking, a Christian 
cannot really be classified ever as a pagan. So a Christian can be decadent, but that doesn't, it's impossible really for a Christian to be called a pagan. Why? It's a contradiction of terms. Christian pagan. That's like saying loving murderer or pure fornicator. It's a nonsensical term, Christian pagan. They are opposite moral, philosophical ideas, Christian and pagan. They stand against each other. So we need to define paganism. So I'm going to give a jet tour on this. Now, why is this necessary? This is extremely necessary for Mark 2 that we're going to start tonight on suffering. Extremely necessary. So I'm going to give you right now kind of a jet tour on paganism. The origin of this term, and then we will eventually come home to roost, maybe at the end of the sermon on 1 Peter 1.6 or next Sunday night. I may just deal with the introduction on the front side. That would be a good goal. Now, the classic term for a pagan, this is still under number one, used to be heathen. You can write that down. A heathen. H-E-A-T-H-E-N. A heathen. That's the term. When we grew up, we used to have missionaries in our churches that were going to the heathen in Africa. Remember those type of terms? Pagans. Now, the United States has never been classified as a heathen nation because everyone says that they're Christians or Catholic or Serbian Orthodox. But that's true if we define a Christian in a certain way. If we define a Christian just based on appearance, um, that this country has over 400,000 Catholic Protestant churches in it, and people say that they're Christians, if we're going to define a person's reality based on what they say in the church they attend, then yeah, this is a Christian nation. But that's not how the Bible defines one's existence. Certainly the Bible doesn't say one is a born-again Christian just by attending church. A country, according to scriptures, could not be defined as godly just because there's church buildings that are standing. So to define the United States as a Christian nation and not a heathen one or a pagan one because of all the people that go to church in Christian churches and claim the name of Christ, whether Bible-believing or not, that's a minimalist standard for defining our country as Christian. It's not a biblical evaluation. But if we look deeper into how Americans or even Europeans for that matter live their lives, and I would put to you that this nation is pagan. We're living in a heathen nation. Just because a person calls himself or herself a Christian does not mean he is one, as you obviously know. Many who claim to be Christian in this country live like pagans. One's true classification must be based then not on verbal affirmations, but on what shows forth in the life. Line number three under number one, we define paganism by how it shows forth in the life. One is a pagan if they live like a pagan, regardless of affirmation. 
So a person could be a Christian pagan. If Christian we define as just, I go to a Christian church, a Christian building. So we're not Christians because of verbal affirmations. We should be Christians based on how we live. Matthew 7, the Lord made this quite plain. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's plain. It is not a false profession of faith that gets one to heaven. It's not what we say, but he who does. The evidences of conversion is behavior. One is a true Christian shown by behavior. Behavior doesn't save, it proves. Behavior doesn't save a human, it proves whether they're saved or not. That's the doing of verse 21. Doing the will of my Father doesn't save someone. It shows whether they're truly converted. Verbal affirmation doesn't mean one is a believer. That's what Christ is saying. Look at verse 23. Then I will say to them, them is the first word of 22, the many. He will say, I never knew you. That's foreknowledge. Depart from me into hell, you who practice lawlessness. Practicing lawlessness, no true believer does that, ever. No true believer practices lawlessness. We've talked about that. Sinning like crazy as a Christian is not practicing lawlessness. And if you don't know the difference between those two, you need to see me So after the service. Write a little note. I need to ask Pastor John how my continuous failure with sinning on a daily basis is not the same as practicing lawlessness because the ones who practice lawlessness in verse 23 who claimed to be believers in verse 21, they end up in hell. So how does somebody who claims salvation in verse 21, Lord, Lord, and practices lawlessness and goes to hell, different from one who says, Lord, Lord, as a believer truly saved and does what Paul did in Romans 7, the very thing I don't want to do, I continually sin. There's an essential and fundamental difference between those two. So this is a perfect example here that Christ drew a clear distinction between one's verbal convictions and how one practices one's convictions. This is important. This is the point of this sermon and next Sunday night. You and I are not defined by our verbal affirmations, but by how we live. That would be good to write under number one. We are not defined and judged by God based on verbal affirmation, but by how you and I live our lives. Do you see that in verses 21 to 23? Is that clear to you? Okay. It's not saying Lord, Lord in verse 21, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Which means, by the way, that any Christian who isn't sure if they're doing God's will would have no assurance. Any Christian who refuses to do God's will is an unbeliever. Now, based on that assessment of who is a believer, 
from Christ's own mouth based on lifestyle and behavior, not on whether a Christian name tag belongs to somebody, based on verse 21, the overwhelming majority of people in this country are pagan. The Old Testament word for a heathen person or nation in Hebrew pronounced in the English is goyim, G-O-Y-I-M. It's interpreted in various ways in the Hebrew in context in the Old Testament as people, nations, Gentiles, heathens. It's a designation for uh, all the peoples and nations in the Old Testament other than Israel. The term goyim in the Old Testament um, has a moral religious overtone to it. It's not just goyim doesn't mean Israel is one country and all the other are non-Jews, thus goyim. That's not what goyim means. It is a moral religious term. So, whereas decadence is a moral falling away, a pagan, now here's your definition, is a religious person with no Judeo-Christian frame of reference whatsoever. That's a pagan. That defines your first question, number one. A pagan is a religious person with no Judeo-Christian frame of reference whatsoever. They have no way, they don't think Christian. They don't think Judeo-Christian. It's called Judeo-Christian because so much of the morality of the Jews is, is, is carried over into the New Testament. That's why you run into people at work and neighbors, they don't even know what you're talking about when you're talking about sin, salvation. They have no clue because they're pagan. A pagan considers themselves religious, even if they say they're not, they are. Even an atheist, who's the purest type of a pagan on this planet, worships himself. So from Goyim in the Old Testament, the, past, the, the usage of this idea of pagan or heathen came into the Greek New Testament. Uh, words in the Greek in the New Testament like ethne, gentes, thedas, are terms employed in the New Testament to designate people who are not Christians, not just non-Jews, but have no moral basis by which they live like Christians. None. A pagan doesn't think with biblical morality. In fact, it's worse than that. A pagan inverts biblical morality, flips it. This is where I'm going. Hang on to this. I haven't lost my way. A pagan inverts biblical righteousness and morality. What is biblically evil becomes moral for the pagan, and what is biblically moral becomes evil for the pagan. Classic example in our society. Pride is a virtue in this society. Gay pride, be proud of yourself, right? We grew up us old geezers. You'd be rebuked even by a public school teacher if you were a student in the 1960s and stood up and said, I'm proud of myself. Now, 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 little Johnny. You need more humility. Yeah. 
So you see how virtue is inverted. Humility is considered weakness in the United States. Pride is considered virtue. That's pagan. Ephesians 4 shows this. Where are you going with this, Perry Mason? <laughs> You'll see. I'm establishing a biblical defense of what I'm going to say with Mark chapter two, Mark number two on suffering. Mark number two on suffering. But go to Ephesians four. This is exactly what I've been saying. Verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. See that in verse 17? You believers are to walk completely different than the Goyim. Gentiles. Again, Greek term, Gentiles. Okay? Gentes. Not just referring to non-Jews, but humanity out there, when Paul wrote this, that is pagan morally. We are not to be like them. They are pagan morally. We are to act like Christians morally. Never are those to be mixed. Walk in verse 17 refers to the Christian life. And then he describes pagan morality. Futility of mind. Futility of mind. Foolish minds. They're fools in their minds. They don't care. They don't care. They're fools. Are we to have foolish minds? No. Opposite of that we're to have. Verse 18. Pagans are darkened in their understanding. They have no understanding of the Bible. So should we be darkened and ignorant of the Bible? I mentioned that this morning. It's one of the most horrific Character qualities of a false believer is continuous ignorance of the Bible. If you read the Bible and you have no clue what this means, what does this first mean? What is that first? I have no idea. That's pagan. Verse 18, excluded from the life of God. If you said to your average American citizen, you're excluded from the life of God, they would say this, so? God? Does God have any relevance during the plague? No. Does God have any relevance on what's going on in Ukraine? No. Does God have any relevance on what's going on in Taiwan? No. Who cares about God? That's why, that's why our country doesn't talk about Jesus Christ. They are pagan, excluded from the life of God, totally ignorant. Ignorance that is in them. In them is up here. Don't have a clue. Because of the hardness of their heart, unconvicted, you give them the truth in their minds, heart is mind, they have no guilt, no guilt. So let's add up the wreckage. A pagan is foolish thinking, verse 17. They don't go according to light, they go according to darkness. Anything that's in darkness morally, they love. They love moral darkness in their minds. God is irrelevant, excluded from the life of God totally ignorant of the Bible and could care less and no right and wrong conviction hardened in their minds. No Christian is to ever be marked by any of those things. That's pagan. We're Christian. The callousness inevitably leads them to physical urges in verse 19. Unstoppable physical urges. Callousness 
So they're given over. They have given themselves over. That's, that's actually the New Testament word for decadentia. So the pagan is marked by decadence, given themselves over. To fall away is what that term means right there in verse 19. They've fallen away into sensuality, impurity, and greed. Does that mark our society? Sensuality, impurity, and greed? Sensuality is just everything's about sex, greed. We know that's money. What's impurity? Very interesting word. Um, polluted. Everything is polluted. One of the drivers of Sky was telling Sue, there goes porno. Drove right past us in the truck. She said, porno. I go, yeah, that's the nickname I give him. Porno. Everything. And I mean, this is no exaggeration. Everything out of this 69-year-old man's mouth is polluted with sexuality. How would you like to work with that guy every day, huh? He asked me to load up his phone with the new um, AWI, Autowares Incorporated. His stuff has to be on our smartphones now. We have to work through this. And so he had no idea how to do it. So he hands me his phone. Could you help me with this? <laughs> Wasn't thinking on that one. As soon as the screensaver appeared, you can imagine what I saw. That's right there in verse 19. Impurity. Akatharsia. Un impure. Mixed. Morally polluted to the core. So you come along and you say, that's not right. That's not right. <laughs> it's like, who are you to tell me what's right? LGBTQ, 65% of Americans now agree with abortion. Pagan! So, look at verse 20. You did not learn Christ in this way. Are we to ever hold to a pagan value system or morality? Are we? you see what's coming? Do you see the storm clouds on the horizon? Little cloud over here. It's going to be mark number two, the absolute necessity of suffering in the Christian's life. What do you think a pagan is after? Suffering? Or verse 19, wonderful, immoral feelings. Which? Feelings. Pleasurable feelings of all type. So it's coming. Verse 20 means you're, you're to be the complete opposite. Complete opposite of this. All right, so under number one, the pagan no longer thinks, acts, or worships in any type of Christian biblical moral way. It's beyond the capacity of a pagan to even think or arrive at any Christian presuppositions. We're on different universe planets now. All our neighbors around us, co-workers, family, completely on two different universes. Our mindset as Christians is totally alien to the pagan's way of living or viewing life. They're not convicted of sin. They don't have believe in any sin. They live in darkness. Their darkness is righteous. It's holy. It's good for them. Anything that fulfills a feeling or urge in them that is pleasurable is good and pleasing. That's pagan. And this brings us to number two. The major mark of a pagan 
as we've just seen in this passage, is this. What is the mark? Write it in the blank. The inversion of truth. Inversion. We're inching closer and closer to 1 Peter 1.6, but not quite yet. You know what it means to invert something, right? Car gets in an accident, flips upside down, it's inverted, right? So anything that we hold that's righteous, take the opposite, that's pagan. So I've given you a list. Number three, biblical versus pagan morals. Biblical virtues, morality is humility. Pagan virtue is what? Across from it. Say it out loud. Pride. The biblical virtue is holiness. The pagan virtue is wickedness. These are holy for them. Virtues. Wickedness. We were looking at some advertising, and the television show is called Evil. And I guess there was one on that used to be, or still is, I've never watched it. It was on Lucifer. A suave, debonair man who looks like James Bond. That's pagan. Wickedness is glorified. Remember the old days, the good guys won and the bad guys lost? And now it's what? The good guys, the bad guy, the bad... Who knows who Batman is anymore? The dark side. Wickedness. Number three, love of others. What is it now in our society? Love of self. Forgiveness? Forget that. I want revenge. I want reparations for what they did to me 150 years ago. That's pagan. Obedience. Bad to the bone disobedience. Yeah, I'm bad to the bone. And I love it. Truthful. Everyone around us lying. They're all liars. Don't believe anything that comes out of the mouth of an unbeliever. Moral absolutes, the biblical virtue, moral relativism. Don't tell me what's right and wrong. You have no idea. That's your system, not mine. I believe in relativism. No divorce. At least that's what it used to be in a church. Divorce for any reason now. Dogmatic, that means there is a right and there is a wrong. Today it's pragmatic. Situation ethics, the end justifies the means. That's what pragmatic is. That's why someone could say, I can lie. I lied to protect you. I hear lying every day of my life. Not here. I'm talking about other contexts. It's all for the good, to lie. You're, you're sparing people. See? It's good. Pagan. Biblical virtue. There are consequences for evil. Pagan virtue. No consequences. Biblical virtue. Do right. Pagan virtue. Feel good. Look at those two lists. Number four. Which list best describes our society, left or right? Right. Number five, this brings us to Bible-believing Christian. Which list best describes evangelicalism? Well, let me say some things to you. I, I would put to you that professed believers are more on the pagan side than the biblical side. Um, selfish me first attitudes among believers is pride is exalted. Free to sin, believers think that. They can sin with... Very little consequence. I don't think there's anything. They're not afraid of sinning. That's pagan virtue, wickedness. Self-love. That's been taught by Dobson. You can't love others if you love yourself. That's pagan. He's been an architect of paganism in the church. 
How about messed up views of forgiveness? Oh my goodness. The church has inverted forgiveness and love completely. Forgiveness is now unconditional, unbiblical. That's why pagans, they say, oh, we believe in revenge, but we also believe in forgiving evil. No, you're not supposed to do that. And then love becomes conditional. I'm not going to love you because of the way you treated me. Everything's inverted in the church. It is love that is unconditional, not forgiveness. Disobedience. Lawless children in the home of Christians. Disobedience in the church. That's bad to the bone disobedience right there in that list on the right. Growing lying and deception in churches. People who don't tell the truth. Leaders who give false resumes in Bible-believing churches. That's lying. Christians who really do hold to the end justifies the means. I protected you. There is a context in which it is all right to do, do evil if it protects you. That's moral relativism. That's in the church. And we know how wrecked divorce is in the church. When I was young in the IFCA in my 20s, first joining the IFCA, I didn't know, a, as I've told you many times, I didn't know a single IFCA pastor who believed in divorce and remarriage. Now, anything goes. Just like society. How many times have I been told that your sermon should be pragmatic, not dogmatic? Dogmatic is a swear word in evangelicalism today. If you're not practical, you'll never win the culture. You need to be culturally relevant. That's pragmatism. And hell is rejected. More and more evangelicals are coming out of the closet and saying they don't believe in hell. Huge group of evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians, don't believe in hell. That's no consequences. And... The number one reason feel good is sought after in the church is because the church has become pagan. And what's the number way if you want to feel good at church? The number one thing you have to do is stop convicting sermons and increase music. Because music can make you feel real good. Okay? Do you ever cry over a song and then you realize it was written by some guy who didn't know anything and he's just making you cry for no reason? You ever watch some film and all of a sudden the music came on and it just brought a tear to your What am I crying for? It's the music. Feel good. So, number five, I think I rest my case on this. I'd say Bible-believing Christianity, by and large, is more pagan than Christian. And now we land in number six tonight in conclusion. First Peter 1.6. Go over there and we'll finish with number, point number six and I'll bring this up next time. What does all this have to do with suffering? Remember, under number two, what is the number one mark of a pagan? Number two that you filled in? Inversion of truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Mark number two of Christian suffering. We've seen even now for a little while, what's next? If what? Necessary. Suffering. Write it in. Suffering is necessary. What is the opposite of necessary? Fill it in. What is it? Optional. When a Christian takes a mandate of the Bible and inverts that to become a different morality, what do we call that? Pagan. That's why I just lectured you on paganism. It is necessary to suffer. When we invert that and our minds are captured by a term that I'm coining, optionality, 
we are behaving pagan. What do most believers think about suffering? They verbalize it. Suffering is necessary. We know it. We know that we're supposed to verbalize it. But remember, your verbalization isn't who you are. Right? But most believers live as if it is optional through massive suffering avoidance. Write it under number six. A Christian is acting like a pagan when they seek at all costs to avoid suffering when it is mandated that we suffer. The pagans avoid suffering. The pagans want to feel good. When we avoid suffering and want to get out from under suffering, we've taken necessity and inverted it into optionality. We are acting pagan. You say, oh, come on. So I do that with that one necessary issue. Okay, so I, all right, so I don't like suffering and I try to avoid it. Why is that so bad? It's one of the eight wills of God. One of the only eight wills of God in the Bible is that you are commanded to suffer. You can't invert that and get away with it. Let's take number one. Salvation is God's will that you get saved by faith. Let's invert that one. Saved by works. I'm going to invert that. Pagan. How about another one? God's will is you be sanctified. I'm going to invert that. I'm going to be living like the devil. Bad than the bone. Just one. One of the eight. I'm going to invert it. Spirit-filled. That's another one of the eight. I'm going to be spirit-filled. I'm going to be devil-filled. I'm going to invert that one. What's wrong? It's just one. You can't get away with this. We need to smack ourselves in the face if you live for the optional desire to get out from suffering and reject its necessity in your life. You, by your practice, you and I are pagan. This is no small inversion. No small inversion. Mark number two, on the back side of your note sheet next Sunday night. It is necessary to suffer. Squeeze out from under that, invert it to optionality. Uh-oh. When am I, my verbal affirmation or am I my practice? We're good at affirming truth. Good at affirming truth verbally. Oh, yeah, yeah. Raise your right hand. You believe God is faithful and he's called you to suffer. I believe God is faithful and he's called me to suffer. Tomorrow. Sick and tired of the suffering. Pagan. Affirmation means nothing. Practice is everything. Rest my case. Thank you, Father, for your word. We will now plow into why suffering is necessary next Sunday night. We yield to your will. 
Your will is we must continuously suffer. If we're not, we have no assurance that we're saved. Thank you for the clear truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.